Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you tonight as we wrap up our series, Holy, thinking about our holy God and how he wholly calls us. And tonight, as we come to this subject, we're coming to the subject of the judgment that Isaiah is called to proclaim. It, it might feel a little discordant with our mood. We're, we're, we're feeling like we're wrestling with what's happening in our world and we're going to talk about judgment how do we make sense of that? How do we talk about God hardening hearts and and cutting people off when what we want to hear is how he loves us? But as we explore this passage, the amazing thing we're going to see is that even in God's judgment, he speaks of his love, and we're going to see that tonight. And so let's go ahead and open in prayer, ask for comfort from our God, ask for his guidance, and then we're going to hear what he has to say. Let's pray. Father, as we come here tonight, I think all of us are feeling on edge. We we live in a world that feels very, very uncertain right now. Lord, we need your certainty and your comfort. We need to know how you are directing and calling us. So we pray that you'd be with us tonight and that your spirit would apply your truth to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. I don't need to mention that war feels like it's the thing on every newspaper's top reporting subject on every news channel and probably on all of our minds at the moment. I don't know about you, but I find myself waking up in the middle of the night and going on to Twitter just to see if the world is blowing up while I'm asleep. Because we don't know what's going to happen. Here we are. We, we thought we were past the Cold War. We thought we were past the era when when someone might be aiming nuclear weapons at us and blowing us up and we're right back in it, aren't we? I I think before last week, a lot of people were still hoping. And then at some point over the last few months, most of us were hoping that this tension that seemed to be building around Ukraine was, was something that wasn't really going to go anywhere. We, We hear a lot about tensions in the world, about things that are going to be horrible and wars that are going to break out. And, and they usually don't, thankfully. But this has been different, hasn't it? Here, here it is, there actually is war, and we, we go online or we go on and watch our television, and every day we see people being killed, sometimes in real time, for senseless reasons. And, and, and so we look, and it feels like everyone I talk to is feeling this way right now. We, we think, well, where do we go from here? We look at, at Vladimir Putin and what he's leading his, his army to do, and, and we think, well, where is the good end? Well, the good end isn't for Ukraine to fall to the Russians. It might end the battle, and yet we know that would lead to oppression, and, and it might seem like peace, but it wouldn't be true peace. Certainly in the Bible, the Bible has a lot to say about peace. But peace, simply because someone wins and oppresses the others, isn't biblical peace. So it's not that. And then we think, well, maybe the Ukrainians will push them back, or maybe we can fly in and help, or or whatever the case might be. But then we think, well, is the whole world going to blow up? Then Are, are, Are weapons that we have going to be fired at Russia, but then Russia fires them at us? And and Bill, just before the service, I noticed in the chat, mentioned he wanted to hear the good news that Russia had withdrawn, and all of us are, are hoping for news like that. Yeah, it's not there. 
And we think it seems like it's impossible. On the one hand, it seemed impossible we'd end up in this spot. And if we do end up in this spot, which now we have, it feels impossible to get out of it. And that's sort of the situation in Isaiah's time as well. There's two prongs to the problem that that Isaiah is going to have to communicate to his people. And, And the first is the problem that they're not going to hear God's warnings. They're going to look at it and, and feel like it was when we heard about some tensions in Ukraine a year ago. And we thought, yeah, okay, Russia's building up a little force. They'll, they'll broker some kind of deal on something they want and it'll all go away. I think that's what most of us thought. And now that we're, we're here embedded in it, we, we feel hopelessness and we wonder, well, how can it be resolved? How can things actually work out well? And that was going to be the other challenge for God's people as well. When they, they heard what was coming, if they actually recognized it really was coming, the temptation would be to fall into hopelessness. But as I mentioned a moment ago, God's judgment, even his judgment testifies to his love. And, and so that's what we see tonight. So let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6 once again. And hear what God commissions Isaiah to say. He's called him as a prophet. He's forgiven him of his sins. And now he's going to call him to communicate this message. Let's take a look. The Lord, we're told, says to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's not exactly a comforting message, is it? God says, you're going to go and tell a message to these people. And this people that he's referring to isn't some enemy people that Isaiah is going to be sent out to talk to. He's not going to be sent to... Go communicate to the Assyrians, you're going to get God's judgment. He's not going to experience the, the sort of calling that Jonah has to go to the enemy. No, Isaiah is going to go and tell this to his own people. He's going to go and bring God's judgment to a people who are guilty of sins just as Isaiah is. If you remember a few weeks back when we talked about God's forgiveness, Isaiah comes before the holy God and says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And now Isaiah is going to communicate the the full judgment that comes from having those unclean lips, from having those hearts that are unclean. The, the word used here to refer to the hearts that aren't going to respond could be translated hearts made fat. These are hearts that, that haven't been exercising their spiritual muscles. They haven't been responding to God's word. And now they're going to just utterly fail when the call comes. Isaiah is going to preach a cure. Isaiah is going to preach what people should do. He's going to explain what God's will is. But people's eyes are going to be blind. Their ears are going to be unable to hear. Why would God do that? We look at this and it, it feels like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense like our world right now feels like it doesn't make sense. Why, why would God do this? And yet what we see here isn't God saying that he just wants to arbitrarily make people's hearts hard just because he's feeling like having something different happen. No, what's he doing here? He's coming to a people who 
for centuries now have done what's displeasing to him, and they're going to take centuries more and do more what's displeasing to him. And he says, you know what? If this is what you're going to do, I'm going to give you exactly what you've asked for. You've had my word, you've had my prophets, and what do you do? You reject them. You turn away from them. I'm going to actually let you experience what that's like. You're going to experience hardening of hearts. You're going to experience spiritual blindness. Because you haven't wanted to respond to the life-giving covenant I offer you time and again. And, and this is, of course, speaking to that moment in Israel's history. Israel is going to become increasingly hardened. They're, they've been rejecting God over and over again and choosing to worship the other gods they think somehow are going to give them an advantage. It also speaks to us and it challenges us as we hear God's word, as we wrestle with it. Because see, here the problem is, is that Israel has time and again rejected its calling. It's rejected the fact that God has said, you need to go and be my priest to the world. The very commission that God gives to the people in Exodus as he calls them out of Egypt. So you're going to be a, a priesthood. You're going to represent me to the world. And yet Israel has done the opposite. They've adopted the world's customs. They've, in, in, sense, in a sense, said, world, represent yourself to us, and we want to be like you. God says, if that's what you want, then this is what it really feels like. And this happens time and again at different levels in Scripture. We see this. This is going to happen on a national scale. It's going to happen to the entire people of God. They're going to feel the weight of God's judgment come upon them because they, they haven't worshipped God properly. They haven't loved God. And they haven't loved their neighbor as they were called to do in response to loving God. They haven't done those things. But it happens as a repeating pattern in Scripture. And we see the same thing happen, for example, with the Pharisees. Jesus actually looks back in his ministry and refers to this passage to explain the response that occurs there. If we take a look at, at Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn there with me, we pick up right after the Pharisees have been trying everything to look at what Jesus is doing, the healing he's doing, the teaching he's doing, as he's teaching with authority and proclaiming God's kingdom, and looking in any and every way to condemn it. Even going so far as to suggest that Jesus is actually coming from the devil and not from God. And in response to that, Jesus starts preaching in parables. Parables that the Pharisees can't understand, that, that most people can't understand. And the apostles come to him in Matthew 13 and they say, Jesus, why are you teaching this way? We can't understand. What, what are you doing here? Jesus responds in, in verse 10. Take a look at this conversation. It says, Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not hear, and hearing they do not hear, excuse me, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then it goes on in in the Gospel of Matthew to quote directly this passage that we're looking at right now. I read a preacher commenting on Matthew 13 and how his congregation will come up to him and say, why don't you use more illustrations? We want more stories. And he said, just like Jesus, Jesus uses parables. And he noted the irony of that because in Jesus's case, the stories were not intended to make his teaching 
clearer to the general audience, but to cut off those who had had spiritually hardened hearts from hearing the message of the kingdom. The parables were used at least in part as a judgment against people because Jesus was going to explain to his disciples what was going on in these parables. But those who, who were just looking for a way to, to find a gotcha that they could get Jesus with, Jesus wasn't going to explain it to them. They were going to miss out on the teaching about God's kingdom. And in some sense, that's what we see here in Isaiah too. Isaiah is going to proclaim, but God is going to obscure the proclamation from those who have already had spiritually hard hearts. When they've said they, they don't care what the Lord has to say, they don't care what the prophets have to say. They want to look out for number one and they want to follow other gods if those other gods seem to offer benefit to them. God says, okay, then, then I'm going to put this life-giving word out here, but you're not going to understand it. And that challenges us. It challenges us today because each and every one of us is called to respond to God's word. And yet the temptation can be often, I was talking to a friend about this last week in Bible study, he was describing a friend who, who put off too long responding to the gospel. And we probably all know people like that who, who, who think that, that they can just say, well, you know, the Bible has a lot in it that says I should do certain things, I should live certain ways, and I don't want to live certain ways. I, I just want life to be easy and pleasing to me. I want to live like the world and, and you know, sometime down the road when I'm, I'm old and I feel like slowing down, then I can, I can spend some time and really study the Bible and I'll learn what God wants me to do and, and then I can respond. And this passage warns us against such action. It calls us to action in the moment. When we hear God's word proclaimed, we're called to respond to it, not to wait, not to, to put it on a bookshelf and think about it for a while. The Israelites had put it on that bookshelf and thought about it. And, and the, the thing with that is, it's like anything that we keep putting off. There's some maintenance we need to do around the house and, and we put it off and we think, well, I can do it tomorrow and I can do it tomorrow. And we always find a reason to do it tomorrow. And, and in spiritual things, we can do that. We can just keep putting it off until tomorrow. But, but the problem is tomorrow never comes. So we're challenged to respond today. And... That's what Isaiah's message is going to be a challenge to us as we look in. We're allowed to look in and see how God's going to work. Why does this get written down? I believe it's, get, it's written down to say, we need to be aware that this happens. And, and the scriptures warn us over and over again not to wait, not to think, someday I'll respond to God's word. Respond today. And if you haven't, I pray that you would respond today. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, respond today, not tomorrow. Not, not next week, not after you make the business deal that you know is going to be a little shady and, and, and so you don't want to be tied to Jesus yet. Not, not when your life is nice and clean and organized and, and you've, you've taken care of everything you think God might be angry with you about. He doesn't ask us to do any of that. He didn't ask his people then to do any of that. He asked them to respond right then and right there. That's what he respond, calls us to do as well. The problem too often is we... We take these promises and we see, oh, here's a promise. We, we see the promise that's demonstrated to Isaiah in this chapter that he's given forgiveness. And, and we saw how that pointed to Jesus. And, and so the forgiveness that's offered to us today. And, and we look at that and we say, oh, wonderful. I, I have this, this coupon here. And this coupon says that, that Jesus will forgive me. And, and we pull out our wallet and we, we stick it in our wallet and we think, okay, someday I'm going to need that. 
Okay, I'm good. I don't need to worry about it right now. But the problem is we do the same thing that I do with actual coupons in this world. I've had so many coupons over the years, and unfortunately, I, a few weeks ago, I or a few months ago, I, I got a little too organized, and I think I threw away a number of them. But I, I had this giant wad in my wallet, and and it was all these different pieces of paper, and I'd pull them out, and it'd be a coupon for something that I'd printed off at the grocery store, and another coupon for a restaurant, and a coupon for this, coupon for that. I'd stick them in there and think, someday I'm going to use these. And sometimes I'd be at the store, and I'd rem- remember it, and i think, well, I'll use it next time. Maybe I'll buy something that the coupon will be better for. The problem is, almost every one of those coupons expires in my wallet. And even when they're online, I do the same thing. I have an email sitting in my inbox right now for a coupon I really ought to use for something I need to buy. And it says expiring soon. It's going to expire later tonight. We'll see next week if I've actually used it. I probably won't because I always forget these things. I put them off thinking I have time to use this coupon. Then it expires. And then all I have is a piece of paper taking up room. God's word is true forever, but but the offer expires. We have a limited time given to us. And as we feel the the calling of the Spirit, as he knocks on our hearts, we should respond. We shouldn't put it off and think I can pull that coupon out later. But here's a second thing that we should know too, because I, I know many of you have responded. You've You've responded to what Jesus has done in your life. And this has something to tell us too, because here's the other side of that. A lot of times we feel like we're living Isaiah's life. We we're we're trying to follow Jesus. We're we're going out in, into the world and trying to live a faithful life. If we have an opportunity, we, we we share about the hope of Jesus with people, and it feels like they don't respond. It feels like they they can't hear, they can't see, they can't perceive. And, and in our very input and output oriented statistical calculations of productivity kind of world, we we look at that and think, well, I'm not an effective Christian. We look at our churches, and, and if there are times where the church is doing what it's called to do, it's reaching out to the people of the community, it's, it's serving the people of the community and loving them, and yet it still isn't exactly just overflowing with people like we think. We think, well, maybe I need to buy a church growth book and figure out how to, to do some kind of program that's going to impress people. But the, the flip side of this is Isaiah's ministry wouldn't be rated as productive in, in the modern sense. If he were analyzed by the church growth experts, he would have been viewed as a terrible success because the people weren't going to hear. They weren't going to understand. But what are we told here? Is, is Our faithfulness is not about how effective we are. Our faithfulness isn't about how productive we are, that we, we have a certain number of people that have come to believe because we've been preaching, or, or a certain number of baptisms, or a certain number of this, or a certain number of that. Our, our, our faithfulness is judged on one thing, which is that we are following God's call, that we're hearing it, that we're living it. Isaiah's faithfulness, Isaiah's productivity, so to speak, was going to be centered on the fact that God was going to give him this message, this, this impossible message, and he was going to go preach it faithfully. People weren't going to respond for the most part, but he was going to do it anyway. And that's what we're called to do. Wherever we are, we simply live faithfully. We don't get bogged down in thinking about what kind of metrics we can apply to see if, if we're an effective Christian. We simply seek to do what God's told us to do. We love God and love our neighbor. And hopefully we'll see fruit from that. Oftentimes we'll see fruit from that. Sometimes we'll be 
planting seeds as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and someone else will see the fruit from that. And that's the beautiful thing about how God works. When we take away that 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 matrix of are we filling in the flow charts and spreadsheets correctly and we start thinking in terms of just doing what God's told us to do, we can rest in that God is going to bring the people he intends to salvation. He's going to do that work. We need to be out in the community preaching and sharing Jesus's love. We need to be serving people. We need to be encouraging and discipling each other. We need to be doing those things. But we can rest in that God might bring someone else along who actually gets to experience the harvest. The one who, who walks into the orchard and sees the beautiful peaches on the tree. We can rest contented in that because we know that God is working. And so even as we work in the midst of a a time where it feels like people aren't believing oftentimes and it feels like the world is very unfaithful and it feels like we're experiencing some of the judgment that comes in a fallen world, even when we're doing our best and even when we're clinging the most to Jesus. Well, that's why God reminds us at the end of this chapter that that he's faithful even in those times, that the hope is still there, that, that this judgment isn't an impossible situation. It's not like we're kind of wrestling with right now and thinking, is there actually a good way out of this conflict that's going on in Ukraine? Is there a way to escape it that doesn't just involve massively more people dying? There's going to be a way. God's judgment is going to push to the cleansing of his people. It's going someplace, and that is going to actually happen. We see that as we look on at the next verses. It's going to be a time first to wait. And we see that Isaiah says, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Judgment's going to come, and it's going to be ugly. The time when when the Babylonians ultimately come in and exile the remnant of God's people is an ugly, horrible time. What's God doing in that? Even in that, he's with the people. The point of judgment isn't God's angry and he just wants to crush the people. He's not just lobbing rockets at them to kill them. Why, why is God bringing judgment upon them? God is bringing judgment upon them to take those people who are spiritually dead and take some of them and awaken them. And we see that in the Babylonian exile to some extent. Right then and there, we see people who, who say, wait a second, we should be following the law of God. And as people return, and we see this told in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people say, well, we want to do what God's word has to say. And we see some some of the law of God being fulfilled in ways it hadn't been since the beginning of the Exodus. But there's more than that, too. There's much, much more than that. And this is something that God does time and again, even in judgment. All the way back at Genesis chapter 3, when we see the fall and Adam and Eve have, have eaten of the fruit that they were told not to eat of. And there's going to be real consequences, consequences that you and I are, are still experiencing today. We look in our world, and it's a very broken world. I, I don't think we need anyone to tell us that. We, we know that. We're experiencing that judgment even today, and yet in the midst of God declaring the consequences of their sin. What does he say in Genesis 3.15? He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
What does that mean? Well, we get a little more clarification by another metaphor in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These two metaphors are speaking of the same one. You see, in Genesis 3.15, there's an offspring that will come of the woman. In other words, a human being that will be somewhere in the line of Adam and Eve that will come and will crush the plans of the serpent, of the devil. And Isaiah then has this other metaphor here. In the midst of declaring all the coming judgment on Israel, he says, but wait, when, when the fires rage through and burn down the forest, there's going to be a stump there. There's going to be a little bit of the people left, and there's going to be a shoot off that stump that's going to come with knowledge and wisdom and power and bring peace. Talking about Jesus. And we see Jesus woven all throughout the the prophecies of Isaiah. Sometimes people talk about the gospel in Isaiah because there is so much good news in the midst of the judgment. We think of judgment as a bad thing, and yet here in the midst of it, God is saying, no, I'm going to take away all the, the dross, all the all the spiritually dead hearts that have no desire to be a part of this kingdom. I'm going to clear all that out. And then when there's only this stump left, I'm still going to preserve my people. And with that stump, I'm going to bring the one whom I've promised from the very beginning is going to restore all things. And so it is in in verse 13. Take a look. Of chapter 6, once again, Isaiah says, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So we have that stump metaphor in Isaiah 6 in the judgment that shows up in the promise and and the hope in Isaiah 11. In that stump, that that little bitty remnant of what's left, after God's taken away all the glory and all the political power and all the, the worldly stature of his people, when they're just exiles, trying to survive as as their land has passed from from kingdom to kingdom for centuries. God says there's something in that stump. There's a promise in that stump. That promise would come in Jesus. And this is the thing that we need to know in in the judgment that God brings. In the uncertainty and the consequence of the sin that, that, that all of us have participated in. There's a certainty still. There's a certainty in what God is going to do as we respond, as we choose not to be the spiritually dead, but, but we respond and we, we respond to the Spirit and we experience the life-giving promises of the Spirit. There's a confidence and a comfort there. I, I think it's sort of analogous to what we experience when we're stuck in the midst of an argument. I think most of us hate arguments. I hate conflict and arguments. They they just eat at me. But if you think about it, I think all of us know there are different kinds of arguments. Sometimes it's an argument with someone that we don't know and there's really no reason to care other than that they're, I mean, we should care. They're an image bearer of God, but we're not going to be connected to them anymore. There's there's nothing that's really going to have a long-term effect. And so it's kind of low stakes and we don't really care. And maybe we argue our point and then we move on. 
And then there are people that, that we know well enough that we actually care what they think and we'd like them to, to remain our friends or, or, or be connected to us in some way. And yet when we're in those arguments, there's a, a discomfort and an uncertainty because we don't really know as we argue, is there a way beyond this? Or is this it? Are we going to not talk anymore? Are we going to be, is this conflict going to do in our friendship? And then there's the comfort with hopefully all of us have experienced with maybe our very closest friends or our family. I hope all of you have experienced that where we know some people, yeah, we can get, we can even be very angry. We can be, we can be butting heads like, like crazy. Yet we, we still have the confidence that there's something left on the other side, that there's love on the other side and, and the comfort of that relationship. And I think we all kind of intrinsically know the difference between those things. Here's the problem. I think oftentimes when we hear of God's judgment, we, we think about those first two categories, that, that we're just someone that's an acquaintance to God and it doesn't really matter if he gets angry, he, you know, he lets us know he's angry and he walks off. Or, or we think that he's like one of those people that we might consider a friend, but we realize that in the midst of arguing over something that there isn't enough binding us together that there'll be anything left afterwards. And so we assume that God's going to walk off on us as well. But God is a God who actually adopts us into his family. And, and better than the best earthly family, God doesn't leave. God doesn't let go. And so when we read even about his judgment as, as those who, who I hope all of you do experience the joy of, of responding and being a part of God's family, it, it, all of us who rest as, as those in God's family to know even in judgment, even, even when we displease God, even when there are consequences to our sin that God doesn't let go. And even when we live in a fallen world where it feels like everything is constantly going against what we think should be, and we wonder if we might somehow just be one of the collateral damage examples of, of all the, the chaos in this world, God's not going to let go. And that's why in the midst of the judgment, he constantly reassures us of his promises. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 40. Lots of judgment going on before that. Lots of prophecies about what's to come. But then it takes this, this sharp turn. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God says to his people, you're going to experience an incredible amount of judgment. Bad things are going to happen because you have been faithless. You have chosen others before me. You have chosen not to follow me. There will be consequences. But after the purging, after God cleans up the mess, he says, I want to provide you with comfort. And that latter part of Isaiah, we see again and again the picture of the servant, the one who would, who would ultimately clean up the mess for us. We see the picture of Jesus. And in that, we know that, that God's promises and God's commitment to us doesn't fail. We live in a world where everything feels like it fails. And, and, and I think that's part of our tension in this current mess that we find our world in with Ukraine. It's been noted time and again that in the lead up to this, that whatever Russia would say they weren't going to do to the Ukraine, they would wait a little while, and then they'd do it. They said just a few weeks ago they weren't going to invade. They were not going to invade. This was just military exercises. We're learning that the, the troops that were actually sent in to invade have been told they weren't going to invade. 
And we realize that oftentimes that people speak one thing and mean another. We know that of our own politicians. I think that's what sort of captured our imagination with the president of of Ukraine, that it feels like he really means what he says. And yet we know that every human being is actually going to fall short on that count. We certainly look at our own leaders and we look at ourselves and we realize how often we fall short on that count. But what do we know about God? What God promises God does. And so as he says, yes, judgment is coming, but there's going to be a holy seed that will come and rescue my people. Well, he did it in Jesus. And he didn't say that then everything would be easy and smooth after that, that that all of us should be living a, a, a luxurious, comfortable life. He didn't say that at all. But what he did say is that there will be a time that he'll wipe every tear away from our eyes. And so we wait. We wait with confidence. In the wilderness that we might find ourselves in in this moment or in any moment in life, we wait with confidence because we know that God's the one who actually means what he promises. And that's our hope tonight. That's our hope every single day. Will you join me in prayer? Father, sometimes it's hard to, to cling to the hope that you do what you say because it's not what we see in this world. We see people and things that, that we think have made it clear they, they can be depended on. Yet they can't. We see that in leaders, certainly in this world, and we realize that they can't be depended on. Whatever we put our trust in in this world, Lord, we, we know falls short. Yet we know that you do not. That you are good and you are faithful. And I pray that you would give each of us that reassurance tonight Whatever comes tomorrow, whatever good or bad news might come out of this war, or anything else that follows, we know that you are faithful and you will keep your promises. And so we can move forward with your calling in our lives, knowing that you are with us and yours is the victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. hope this has been a comfort to you in this uncertain time. God is with you. He is faithful. If it has been a comfort to you, would you consider giving this a like? And also, would you consider giving this a share? By sharing this on your social media accounts or emailing it to someone or calling someone up and telling them about it, you can remind them about the promises of God that we've been talking about together tonight. And and I really am thankful for you doing that. We're going to be talking a lot more about those promises in the future of Little Hills Church. We know that God's leading us somewhere, and it's exciting to see where. And and I mentioned last night, tonight we're announcing our launch of in-person services. We're going to have our very first in-person service in just a few weeks, actually just just short of a month, on March 27th. So we'll be assembling it in our place at 335 Drosty in St. Charles and, and actually gathering as a congregation in person, while also continuing to do the online ministry we've been doing. And for those of you that don't live in the area, we're going to continue to have steadfast. We're going to continue to do this week at Little Hills with our our Psalms readings. We're going to keep doing all that and build up a ministry that's hybrid. We're going to be reaching people online and in person, seeing how God works in this amazing technological world in which we live in. But we're coming up to that in-person launch just ahead of Easter. It's so exciting. And I'd like to ask you, would you be praying for us over this month? And we're going to have some opportunities over the course of this month for people to get involved in prayer and preparation. 
Certainly, if you would like, I would love to hear from you. I'm going to have my email address on screen. If you would like to be part of the, the launch and you want more details, you want to volunteer in ways you'd like to serve, all those sorts of things, please shoot me an email at the email address on screen and we can talk about it and plan and, and rejoice together. I'm so excited about this. And as part of that, we're beginning a brand new series entitled Bake Together. We're, we're coming back to Philippians. We, we were in Philippians last month. We're coming back to Philippians in the month of March, looking at chapter two, thinking about what it looks like to be the body of Christ. Because that's what we want to be here at Little Hills, whether you're online or you're in person, whatever your involvement here in, in this little ministry looks like, we want to be baked together into something delicious that glorifies God. And so we're going to begin that series next week at 7 p.m. on Steadfast. So I do hope that you'll take part in that. And of course, we're continuing our, our Bible reading series going through the Psalms this year. And this week's readings are up on screen. It would be so great to have you take part in that as well. We're going to be looking at Psalm 25 yesterday and today. Look at Psalm 26 by Wednesday. Look at Psalm 27 by Friday. So please do take part in that as well. It's going to be a continued blessing to share that with you. If there's any way I can be praying for you this week, once again, you can shoot me an email or leave a comment in the comments below. It's always a delight to hear from you and we can pray for each other. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week. And I can't wait to see you again next week as we begin that brand new series, Baked Together. I'll see you next Monday. And don't forget our readings on Sunday night. Thank you.